Well, we've been asking this question, um, what is so great about Christmas? And the answer that we've been hearing is this, and this is the biblical answer, but the very heart of it is this, that um, Christ has come to us. He who is God Almighty and God Eternal, He has joined Himself to humanity for the sake of our redemption. Whenever we look around in the world, there is something that's, that's happening in most countries where, where the world is filled with pomp and with decoration and with celebration and with feasting and with gift-giving. And um, when you ask people, what is this all about? A common answer is that this is about the birth of a baby. Now, that's true, but as we've been hearing, this is about so much more. And if you think of Christ's birth as something that is a cute little baby in an admirably difficult beginning of a manger, well, you probably only have part of the picture. And so we want to help ourselves see the depth of the fullness of this, of what God has done in sending this Messiah. The, the song that we sang second this morning, What Child Is This?, is such a great question. It's such a great place to begin to ask. There's this child that was born, and if you speak to anyone about Christmas, they'll say, well, this was the birth of Jesus, and he was born in Bethlehem. And so to ask that question, what child is this? And then to get to the answer, this, this is Christ. He's the King. He's the Lord. And you see, you see something of the fullness, of the vastness of who this is, uh, with whom we are dealing at Christmas. It really, it really changes everything. So, um, the answer is that this is God Himself, Almighty, who came and He took on human nature. As Zach said, he, he got a body like we have. And so in doing so, what he did, and what we see here in this book of Hebrews is he revealed himself. God made himself known. In this book of Hebrews, this is actually considered a, a sermon. It's called later in the book a short exhortation. And there, it's so packed, it's so dense. This, this letter, this sermon as it is, was written to Hellenistic Jews. That, those are Jews who spoke Greek. And they lived in different Greek-speaking cities around the Roman world. And these had become Christians. And so they were living in this world where in the Roman Empire in that first century, probably in the early 60s AD, before the temple was destroyed, they were facing difficulty. They were living in places where it was very hard to follow Christ. And so they were tempted to think, is there more? How can we have a better life? How can we get through um, what we're experiencing right now? And so the answer that's given in this sermon is this. It's that God has made himself known. And what you need more than anything else is to know this divine truth that God has revealed. And what he has revealed is most fully expressed most fully communicated through Himself coming to us. Through who He is, Jesus, and what He has done. And that's what these three verses are all about. So we look at this and what we see is that God has revealed Himself and He has shown us the most important thing that we need to know. 
And that, that can be understood in two categories. Who this is and what he has done. So we see this, the, the beginning of this passage says that in the past and at many times and in many ways God spoke, spoke by the prophets. Okay? God spoke by the prophets. So in many times and in many ways. We go back and we look at, for example, Enoch or Noah or Abraham or, or Moses or the other prophets that spoke. Uh, David himself. And God was speaking through different times through people. And he did it in many ways. Uh, David wrote psalms, but then he could write later in his life that he was the sweet psalmist of Israel who speaks the oracles of God. He knew that he was revealing the very truth that came from God himself. Isaiah knew this. Isaiah had visions. And so he could, he could write and say, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Or you could, you could go to um, those that had dreams. Or those that, that the word of the Lord came to them and then they would speak. So God would speak through these people, through history, God's very word. The very message that God had for us. Now, we have to appreciate, this is an amazing thing. Because God didn't have to let us even know that he's there. God didn't have to let us continue to have life. And what we lost with sin when Adam sinned and when sin came into this world, we lost the closeness, the connection that is life itself with God. But then he says, it gets even better. He says, but in these last days, the beginning of verse 2. Now, now there's a phrase there, in these last days. Sometimes people refer to the last days. And usually what they mean by that is the last days of these last days. And what they mean is when, the time when, right before Jesus comes back. And the, and the right understanding that that will probably be a very difficult time. And when people say, do you think we're in the last days? That's usually what they mean. And it might be that we're in the last days even now. The way that this is being used here, the last days is understood to be the time after Christ's death and resurrection and his ascension until the time when he returns. It's an, it's an era of time. And in God's bigger plan for all eternity, these are the last days of this time of redemptive history. Where before that, God spoke through prophets. But he said that in these last days, he has revealed himself very completely and very fully. How? By himself coming. God the Son came and revealed himself. And in him is most fully and truly revealed what we need to know. The fullness of grace. The fullness of God's truth and His holiness. He says, in these last days, He has spoken by His Son. He has spoken to us by His Son. And then, we get this very densely packed list that reveals to us what He has revealed. And what He has revealed is this. Who He is and what He has done. And in the, under these two headings, we want to look at what this says about Jesus. It's under these two headings. There, there are seven things in all. That's a number that is significant in the Scriptures. There are seven things listed about who He is and what He has done. Only one of these has to do specifically with His earthly ministry. But these things have to do with who He is that we are dealing with when we think about Christmas when we think about uh, the Incarnation. 
So we want to look at these. Now the reason is this. People are always looking for something more. There's there's these longings that come into our lives where we think there, there must be something more. There must be something that can satisfy me. And there was a guy that lived around 400 A.D. And his name was Augustine. He lived around the Mediterranean world, and he, lived, um, he actually lived in several places around the Mediterranean world. And he wrote this book called His Confessions, and it's a famous biography that he wrote of himself in the form of a prayer to God. And in it, what he does is he says, this is what my life was like, and he's talking to God through the whole thing. So Augustine explains, and if you read through them, it's, it's, um, he's trying to, in his life, satisfy this desire that he has in his heart. That, like, where can he find satisfaction? Where can he find uh, happiness and completeness in this world? And so with his life, he's trying to satisfy these with different things. So he talks about how he sought pleasure. He talks about how he sought uh, to, to just expend wealth or to, or, to, or to have relationships with women or to have uh, drunkenness with wine. And those were leaving him empty. It's a lot, like, um, a lot like what Solomon did. He tried philosophy. He, he thought of the wisdom of the Greeks, and he learned it and he studied it. He sought uh, false religions. One of them, a big one, was Manichaeism that he dabbled in. But what he says is that these all left him empty. And so he tells this story about how he, he was... He, he heard these children singing this song that in Latin the, it says, take up and read. And so he picked up the scriptures and he read in the book of Romans. And that he saw and he found in the book of Romans something that changed his whole experience. It was the, the revealed idea that there is forgiveness of sins in Christ. He needed forgiveness of his sins and he could find that in Christ. And so then he writes this, and this is the main idea of what changed his life completely. And it's the story of every Christian. And it's this. His famous statement was this. As, it, as stated as a prayer from him to God, he says this. He says, God, our hearts are made for you, and they are restless till they find rest in you. Our hearts are made for you, and they are restless till they find rest in you. You see, we are made to be with God. We, we are created to be connected with our Creator. And as long as we are apart from Him, there will be this longing that we experience, this emptiness that can't be fully and permanently filled. Other things will temporarily fill us with some satisfaction, but then they will drain out and we'll be left empty again. Now, this is incredibly important. And so the book of Hebrews, this letter, this short exhortation, begins with this. God whom we need more than anything, has made himself known. He didn't have to, but he has revealed himself. He is a God who has revealed what we need to know, to know him. And in these last days, he has made himself completely known in this fullness by revealing himself in his Son. And so what we need to do is look at him. And so what we see here is this, that knowing Christ is what you need to believe and have eternal life. That's for wholeness in Him. And knowing Christ is also what you need in order to endure as a Christian in this world through a very jarring experience in this world, through the ups and downs where life is difficult, 
like it was for those Hellenistic Jews. And life can be very difficult in this world as a believer. Well, how do you endure through this? You need to know who he is and what he has done. So let's focus in on these phrases in verses 2 and 3 to see this, to see the answer. We see this. After it says that he has revealed himself, he's spoken to us by his Son, then we get this first phrase. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. Now these are very densely packed statements, so we want to understand what they're saying and what they mean to us. First, whom he appointed heir of all things. This means that the Father has declared that God the Son is the owner of all things as his inheritance. Now to say that he is the heir of all things uh, is, is an indication that he has authority, uh, that he is the owner over all, he is the rightful owner of all, um, and as, their, as the heir, we understand that he will clearly be established at some point with this inheritance. And I believe that what we're saying is this, that as he'll say in the next chapter in Hebrews 2, that we don't yet see everything at present um, in subjection to him, but it will be. And so what he says is that there will be a day when the heir will receive all of this inheritance in a way that is fully known to all people. That Christ himself will be the Messiah King who is established where there is no question that he is the ruler and he is the, the owner of all. He is the supreme person over all that is created. And you think about what, what all there is. This is a massive statement. For him to say that um, heir of all things, that leaves nothing out. The heir of, of the universe. And, and you think about, I mean, there are so many illustrations of how big the earth is, but how small it is in comparison to our solar system. And then our galaxy, and then the many galaxies that are in this universe. I mean, just the amazing greatness of all that is, of all this creation. He is the heir of all things. I was speaking to my son this morning on the drive-in, and he was saying it'd be really cool because of the SpaceX thing and this idea of commercial flights that can go up, and, and maybe in the future uh, you, they'll be able to take some people to go and take these tours around the moon and then come back. That'd be really fun. Think about this. This is what we also talked about. If, if he is the heir of all things, and in Ephesians it says that we are joint heirs with him, that he will share this inheritance with us, then we might get to go and see all these galaxies someday. Christians. We might get to see... That's better than when you turn 16 and you get your freedom of your driver's license. <laughs> he is the heir of all things. In Psalm 2, this Messiah King is spoken of. And, and God the Father speaks to the Son in that, and he says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. He, he, will be the, he will come into the rule of all these things. Now, as we think about these things, we should apply it. Think of that day when Christ receives his inheritance, when all things are in subjection to him. And when you do, just like these people, you should have a, the strength put in you to endure what's happening in this world. The consummation of all things, this is God's plan from all eternity that Christ should reign um, and realize that Jesus will be the king over all things, all heaven, 
all earth, everything that you see, everything that you don't see. He has authority over all. In fact, he says that when he says, go and make disciples of all nations. So brothers and sisters in Christ, this thought should be your comfort as you deal with the corruptions of this world. He will make things right. Things will be made the way they ought to be on a day to come. And if you're not a Christian, you need to consider this, that if these things are in fact true, this should fill you with fear. This should give you pause and consideration that if this is the Messiah King, who is God's heir of all things, then you need to be right with Him. Now secondly, we see this phrase, through whom He created the world. That's also at the end of verse 2. And what we're seeing here is this, that God the Son, being fully God from all eternity, is He who created all things. It was the Son, not the Father or the Spirit, who made all things. He spoke them into being. And it says this in the Nicene Creed. It says, Through Him all things were made. We read this in Colossians. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And what, does, what do we get from that? This is no second-rate person. This is God the Creator. The Lord Jesus Christ, who was born in a manger in Bethlehem, this is God, your Creator, and nothing less. He is always put forth in Scripture. My, my, one of my professors from seminary wrote a book about uh, 12 years ago called Christ as Creator. Uh, Sean McDonough is his name. And he shows this. He shows that when um, in Scripture, whenever there's a connection with this messianic kingship, when, when there's a connection with, um, with God as our creator, it's connected with this messianic kingship. And what that means is that all the way through Scripture, as God is revealing himself as the creator, he's also showing at the same time, and just look for it and you'll start to see it, that he's showing that the intention has always been that God's king, God's Messiah king, who created all this, should be the ruler of all this. This, this is Christ the King. That's who we're dealing with. That's what child this is. And thirdly, we see this phrase. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And now we're getting into some deep things. This and the next phrase. Not that these are, these are shallow things. But, but the radiance of the glory of God. What are we getting with this? This is, this is the display of God's glory, is what it's saying. Jesus is our fullest display of who he is. God has made himself known so fully. The radiating glory of God is made known in Jesus. He has spoken to us by his Son. That is, God the Son is this display of glory that is, is the, the clearest, brightest way that you can know God. Now question, do you want to behold the glory of God? Just like Zach's sermon uh, for these children. The answer is this. If you want to behold the glory of God, if you want to have that gap, that void filled in your heart that is restless until it finds rest in Him, study Jesus. Look at Him. Get to know Him. Fourthly, we have this phrase that he is the exact imprint of his nature. 
This means that you have the real true God. The, the Greek word is the character, um, the, the essence of who God is. Now this means that you have the real true God, the exact authentic true God, when you have Jesus. It's the essence of the substance of God. That's who Jesus is. Now, if you go to a jewelry store, they have high security in jewelry stores. They have chains and they have bars and they have guards with guns. And they have safes and they lock that stuff up. Why? Well, because they have very valuable things in there. Things that are valuable in this world, like gold. Okay, Just take gold for it as an example. When you look at gold and you see it as a ring or if you see it on that, that nice dark velvet where they display the, the jewelry, it's polished and it's nicely shaped, you understand this is a valuable thing and people pay a lot of money for such jewelry. Well, what, that's, what this is saying is this, that Jesus, whom we esteemed not, who came in humility, uh, who was, was not regarded as someone great in this world by most, is like gold that is found in its, in its rawness from a cave. That if you were to go to one of, those, one of those gold mines and first discovered one of those in California a few hundred years ago, and you were to find this piece of gold in all the filth that would be around it, what you would have yet was the very same substance that is refined and polished and on display in those jewelry stores. Jesus, in his humility, in all of his earthly display of, of his life, was nothing less than the very essence of God. He is God who came to us and he clothed himself in humility as he came as a man. And so we read these things in the, in the Nicene Creed again. Now, the Council of Nicaea was to clarify the understanding of, of, of who God is and these very basic doctrines. And one of the big issues in that Council of Nicaea was this. Was Jesus at some point created? Who is he really? And so in Nicaea, they established this. that He is the essence of, of God in this way. It says, The only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. Now you say, oh, he was begotten. So you mean he was born? And they say, no. We are not saying that. Well, you're saying that there was a time before he existed because he was begotten. Not saying that either. He, was he is, we should say this, he is and always has been eternally begotten of the Father. That the very person of Jesus is with the Father and the Spirit from all eternity. He always has existed. He wasn't born. He was not created. So the, so the, the, the creed goes on. Uh, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. You see, this, this, this child, what child is this? This is God. This is the fullness of God. He always was. And He came in humility. All the essence that there is in the Father and that there is in the Holy Spirit, all of the wisdom, all of the um, omniscience, all of the omnipotence, all of the perfection, all of the holiness of the whole Trinity of each person is in Him. Friends, this is who was born 
at Bethlehem in a manger. God Himself came to us. Now this deserves celebration. Don't you think we should celebrate this? Don't you think it's worth a little pomp? Now when you grasp this, that it's not just a little baby, yeah, we should have parties. We should have eggnog. Um, our songs should be rightly ordered, like the songs that we're singing here. This deserves celebration. This deserves thanksgiving. This deserves our worship. This is God. Let's look at this next phrase. Now, we, we want to see what He has done. Who He is is God the Son, eternal who came and took on human nature in the incarnation. We see this phrase then. Fifthly, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Now intuitively, and Tom, as he was reading it, you would think it's by the power of His word. And His word is powerful. But look at what it says. It says, by the word of His power. His power goes out in His words. His very words are power that can say, let there be light and there is light. So what what does this mean? Right now, He is upholding all things. Right now, all the planets and the stars are being sustained. And your heart is continuing to beat. Why? Because He upholds it. This is the testimony of Scripture. God Himself is who keeps you alive. God Himself is what keeps these planets in orbit. God Himself holds all things together. And nothing... Because look at what it says. He upholds the universe. Nothing in this immense universe could continue to be or to move or to, or to function as it is unless He, who is God the Son, were upholding it. It does not run by itself. There is a Creator who, who empowers it, who holds it together, and that is Jesus. That is... That is This child who was born in a manger. What child is this? He's the one who holds every molecule together by the word of his power. It is his powerful word, Jesus the Son. Think about your own body. Think about your soul. There is only wholeness. There is only fullness and rest in he who can hold you together. He's your creator. And your heart will be restless until you find rest in Him. In fact, in this book of of Hebrews, this letter, it speaks of the eternal rest that we can have now in in chapter 4. This this Sabbath rest that comes from God. It's kind of the concept of shalom, where in the Hebrew language you have not just absence of war, but you have completeness. You have the fullness of everything that that you need that is in Christ, and it's from Him and with Him. So that in Hebrews 4, it says that there is an eternal rest from God. We enter it now. It says that we who believe enter that rest right now. Our hearts that are restless find rest in Him. Just like Augustine did. And so, sixth, we have this. He made purification for our sins. Now, technically it says, after he made purifications for our sins. So we want to see what this is setting up. But this little phrase about him making purifications for our sins is the only thing that happened in the, in the constrained um, work of his earthly ministry. 
And what does he point out? Well, he points out what was most important in that earthly ministry. Everything else was important, but this is of supreme importance. It was his atoning work, his making purification for our sins. You know, part of the problem of why we don't have fellowship with God, of why we break and why we drift away from Him, is because, in fact, the whole of our problem is our sin. And, and what you realize when, when, you, when you seek to have um, satisfaction, when you seek to have fullness in life, you will run into emptiness after emptiness. And very often, that is because sin has crept into our lives. Sin has crept out of our lives. And what does it do? It robs us of communion with God. What did He do? He dealt with that very sin. He took away the thing that keeps us away from Him. He came and He made purification for our sins. In other words, sin here is pictured as, as a stain. And this is, this is the idea of the Old Testament system of the priesthood, of making purification for things through sacrifice. And in this book of Hebrews, the idea of Christ as a priest who does this, this sacred work that the priests represented, he did it in completion. He took away sins. How? He did it by dying on the cross. So the only earthly thing mentioned is what he did on the cross. And what he did was he removed sin. He did what none other could do. He made purification. He, he took away the, the, the staining filth of sin from our lives so that it's gone. And when he died on that cross, he could say it's finished. He cleansed us. He cleansed away the filth of sin. You know, you might, you might stay away from God because you feel ashamed. He cleanses us. And it says later, it says that he cleanses our consciences. He washes us clean. He helps us know we, you, are acceptable to God to be with him. This was the heart of the work that he accomplished in his incarnation. It says this in, in 1 John 3, 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. Why did Jesus come? He came to be a sacrifice. He came to be a redeemer. He came to say, I'm going to take their place so that they can be free and I'll die in their place. And he did it. And he did it perfectly. And you know what? To just borrow from this gold analogy, don't confuse God with gold because gold is just something small that he created. In fact, there's an old joke where people say, uh, people that were hoarding, hoarding gold wanted to take just one thing into heaven, so they took all their gold, and then they showed up and they said, why'd you bring pavement? <laughs> but let me use the analogy a little bit more. If you understand the very worth of who this is that died on that cross, you understand that the very value, the, 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 the unmeasurable worth of God himself giving himself in your place was the sufficient sacrifice to pay for all of our sins. Everyone who turns to Him. Every one of His people on that day. So when He was born, He was born that, he, that we might not die in eternal death. From the very beginning, that was His plan. The, the, the Magi got it. They brought gold, they brought frankincense, and they brought myrrh. You know what myrrh is? It's for death. It's for bodies that are going to be buried. The frankincense means this this priestly role, but this, this prophetic role of being the sacrifice, being the lamb. He was born to be the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Friends, he's so much more than just a cute little baby. I love babies. 
You know, I love, I love when they're about 18 months old and they're like pudgy, but they're like a little bit solid. Like, we all love babies. Most of us love babies. Some don't. But he's so much more. He's so much more than a cute little baby. He is God who humbled himself to that manger. He deserves celebration. He deserves our worship. He is God incarnate, our Redeemer. And lastly, this this phrase, it doesn't even end there. After he made purifications for sin, it says this, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This indicates a few things. First, we see the completeness of his redeeming work. Jesus said it is finished. Because he, he who humbled himself to the lowest place, even death on a cross, we'll see that in a couple of weeks in Philippians 2, God the Father has exalted him and given him the highest place. In, in uh, Revelation 5, he's the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, who is standing. He has overcome death. He who was slain is now standing. And where is he? He's in the midst of the throne of God, Revelation 5. And he's worthy of all glory. He completed this work and he is there with God in majesty. He's God himself. None of us could go there. None of us could earn our way into it. He came, he did this, and this is where he is. This also indicates also his ongoing work of intercession. In this letter of Hebrews, we see this, that he was tempted like us in every way, yet was without sin, and he has overcome all of this, so he is able to save us to the uttermost, who call on his name, and he is able to sympathize with us and help us as we suffer, as we are tempted, as we sin in this world. He is in heaven looking at you, believer, and saying, I get it, and I'm going to give you what you need, and I'm going to supply you with the wisdom that you need, with the grace that you need, so that in your life you can continue on. This is his high priestly role. He is right now interceding for us so that we can even understand his words as we listen to this, so that we can go out this week and live for him, so that we can deal with the difficult things that are weighing on you so heavily, and you can endure through him. And in doing this, you're seeing him, and you're being changed. You're being changed because you are seeing him who is God forever, who came to be your redeemer, and in him what you see is this. You see him who fills you with hope. You see him who fills you with with forgiveness and with the knowledge of that and with strength to endure on, to say no to sin and to not trust in any other thing because He is greater. And what you see in Him is this, that in Him is everything that I ever need. And the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. And that's what you see in Him. And He is working right now and interceding for us. And what you see also is this, that He has... Um, inexpressible glory and majesty. With him is, is this radiant glory. He humbled himself and now he is glorified. And so therefore he is worthy of all of our praise. He is, is like, you see a beautiful sunset and you say something about it. You see the snow falling and, and in, in a few weeks it might happen. And, and th- those are beautiful sights. You see a, a baby and you say, this is beautiful. And you just express it. When you see His glory, when you see His majesty, you say, you are worthy of all my praise and all honor. Friends, what child is this? This is Christ the King. 
This is God Himself. And, and this is your Redeemer. This is the eternal Messiah. Here is the Redeemer of all mankind in fullness of description of His person and His work, who He is and what He has done. And what we get in this is a, a picture from all eternity past up through this present age. But there will be a day after He returns and after He judges and after all of His people are glorified and raised with Him when we will learn new aspects of who He is and we will dwell with Him forever. Keep your eyes on Him now. We're getting to that point. The main thing with this letter is this. God has spoken. He spoke to us by the prophets and in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son whom He has revealed. And since God has spoken, you must listen. You must give yourself to know Him, to focus on Him. That's what it says in chapter 2. It says, Therefore we must pay closer attention to what, ha- we have, what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Keep praying for people to not drift away from the gathering of this fellowship. That was one of the warnings that he gives in this book, in this letter. Look at this, what he says in chapter 12. He says, Let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We keep focused on Him. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And as you continually unfold and see the greatness of who He is and what He has done, you will be filled with that strength that you need to endure, to press on, to run the race with endurance, to live faithfully with Him through the difficulties of this world, the things of this present world. And those things will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. What child is this? It's Christ, the King. Let's pray.